Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. The book of Zechariah, chapter 7. I know it's been a while since we've been in Zechariah. Um, We're going to pick up where we left off, and Lord willing, we'll be back there again next week. Maybe we'll finish the book. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Zechariah, chapter 7, and we're going to read the entire chapter. While you're getting to Zechariah, chapter 7, just to kind of catch you up, uh, because it has been a while, Um, we were going through the book of Zechariah, and what we saw was that Zechariah had these eight visions in one night. And these visions spanned from uh, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7, all the way up into halfway through chapter 6. And and Zechariah recorded these visions in great detail. And what they had to do with is they had to do with God's relationship with Jerusalem and how Jerusalem was going to come back to a place of prominence and prestige in the land that God promised them. Um, But the issue is that they they need to repent. They need to believe the promises of God. And so you get these, and so what it is is you, you get these visions of how God is going to deliver Jerusalem. God is going to take sin away from Jerusalem. Um, we get the we get the symbolic pictures of how Babylon is involved in all that. And of course, you remember we took an excursion away from Zechariah into the book of Revelation to talk about the symbolism of Babylon throughout the entire Bible. Um, and then where we left off was this this vision in Zechariah six one through eight of the four chariots, and then how that related to the crowning of Joshua the high priest as king. And of course, we, don't, we know that that wasn't a, a real crowning. He wasn't really crowned king of Jerusalem, or he wasn't crowned king of Israel. It was a symbolic crowning. It was to show that God um, was going to anoint a priest king. And of course, that is, that is a foretelling of Jesus the Messiah, who is our prophet, priest, and king. Um. And so now we return to Zechariah chapter 7, and, and, we're no, and again, we're no longer in the visions, we are in the prophetic words. So from here to the rest of the book of Zechariah, you see these various messages that God gives to Zechariah to tell the people, and how this relates to, and how this relates to the future of Jerusalem. So Zechariah chapter 7, and we're going to read the entire chapter if you have it, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the fourth year of King Darius it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month Kislev. When the people sent Sherezar and Regemmelech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those seventy years, did you really fast for me, for me? 
When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion every one to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, this is your word and we are your people. And Lord, we trust your spirit this morning to make plain what you have to say to us through this text. Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips. I pray that you would let me speak truth. I pray that you would bring the truth of this word into our hearts and that we would hear it, and that we would understand it, and that it would be applied to us. Father, we trust you with that responsibility this morning. I trust you with that responsibility, Lord, knowing that I can't do this on my own, but I lean into you and I trust you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Throughout the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s, the evangelical church went through what several Christian journalists called the worship wars. The worship wars were basically a conflict within several churches that arose over the question of what kind of music we should have. Should we have only traditional hymns? Should we have only contemporary music? Should we have a mixture of both so that it makes everybody unhappy? <laughs> Those who advocated for contemporary music said that the vocabulary and the style of traditional hymns, it seemed outdated and irrelevant to the modern world. And Those who advocated for only traditional hymns said that contemporary music sounded too much like rock music and, and rock music doesn't belong in the house of God. And so the arguments went on on both sides. It was an issue that changed the dynamic of several churches and denominations across America. And it caused church split after church split. Some congregations thrived and others died off. And let me tell you that there's nothing the devil loves more than a good old-fashioned church split. However, from a strictly biblical standpoint, I think I can honestly say that most of the people on both sides of the argument were asking the wrong questions. They're asking, should we do contemporary music, yes or no? Or they're asking, should we do traditional hymns? Yes or no? What people on both sides of the argument need to do is return to the fundamental question of why do we sing what we sing in the first place? Why do we sing what we sing in the first place? Because if you sing what you sing entirely based on your own personal preference, whether, whether that's hymns or whether it's contemporary music, that's a problem because you're elevating your own preference over and against what's actually appropriate. 
The problem is that you can't define worship over what your preference is or is not. Because as soon as you do, you cease to worship God and you begin worshiping a little g God of your own making. Because there's a church on every corner. Our, our culture makes it easy to do this, right? There's a church on every corner, so our culture makes it easy to pick a church based on our preference, based on how we feel, based on what we like. If you don't like what this preacher says, then go find a church where the preacher says what you want to hear. If you don't like contemporary music, go find a church where they sing only hymns. If you don't like hymns, find a church where they sing only contemporary music. If you don't like this or that, then out of 120 churches in Polk County, there has to be one that will cater to your whims and make you feel warm and fuzzy so that you don't actually have to repent and believe the gospel. What happens is that we make worship all about us and then we'll fight with anybody who doesn't think worship should be all about us. In his book, The Church Awakening, Pastor Charles Swindoll gives us a helpful framework for what the worship wars are. He says the worship wars occur when Christians clash over the expression of worship. Traditional style versus contemporary, organs versus bands, choirs versus worship teams, coat and tie versus t-shirts and jeans, hymns versus choruses, hymnals versus screens, King James Version versus modern translations, and the list goes on and on and on, and it's all about a war of expression, of my expression versus your expression. Now, most wouldn't believe the infighting that occurs around these themes and what God intended for His glory and for our corporate and personal growth. Worship has been transformed from a soul-deep commitment to an ugly, carnal fight. Christ promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, and yet this war has hurled shrapnel into the body of Christ and pockmarked Christian unity. If there is anything that brings delight to Satan, it is the disruption of the worship of God. And I think that's true. Now, I bring all of this up because in Zechariah chapter 7, where we just read, the Jewish people who have returned home from exile have encountered a worship war of their own. They've encountered a worship war of their own. So people haven't changed all that much. It's just what, you know, people like to divide and fight with one another. It's just that what they divide over changes throughout the years, right? When the exile began, they started doing a yearly, uh, a yearly day of fasting in the fifth month to commemorate the day that Jerusalem had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And they didn't, uh, and, and, uh, and they did another commemorative fast two months later to remember the destruction of the temple. So, so you've got these people coming in, um, and, they're, and what they're doing is they're creating their own feast days and fast days based on these events that happened in their history. It would be like, it would be like almost what would happen today if Texans began doing a yearly fast day to remember the Alamo, or if we started doing a memorial fast on September 11th. And so what's happening is... The people sent Sherezar and Regam Malek, these two men who probably represent both sides of the argument, to the temple so that they could ask the priests, should we continue doing these fast days that we created? And so they also started observing a yearly fast in memory of Gedaliah, which you can, uh, which you can read about in Jeremiah chapter 41. They had another fast where they remembered Nebuchadnezzar's siege against Jerusalem, which you can read about in 2 Kings 25. 
Um, now here's the kicker to all of this. Throughout Israel's history, God had only ever commanded one annual fast. That was Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement. So God commanded there to be one fast a year, and then the Jews went and created four more fast days throughout the year that God didn't command them to do. So they burdened themselves. And so they're, they're keeping these extra fast days, and it's, a, and it's a burden that they put on themselves that they, weren't even, that they weren't even actually keeping these fasts properly because they were oppressing their workers, neglecting the fatherless, the widows, and the poor. And if you tried to call them on how they weren't even keeping their own fast days properly, they would say, well, look how spiritual we are. We, we have all of these events and feasts and fasts that we do. They're going through the motions of their religion. They're going through the motions of what they believe or what they say they believe, and they're claiming they're doing a good enough job, and they're claiming that they're spiritual. <coughs> now, why did they add all of these extra fasts? What's that about? Well, what they found is that it was easier to engage in activities that looked holy than it was to actually be holy. I'll say that again. They found that it was easier to engage in activities that looked holy than it was, than it was, than it was to actually be holy. It's easier to look holy than it is to be holy. And we're no different. Going to church looks holy. Putting money in the plate looks holy. Coming to Sunday school looks holy. Going to a Bible study looks holy. But none of those, none of those things actually make for holiness if your heart is not in a position to be transformed by the Word and Spirit. There are unbelieving reprobates who go to church every Sunday, but until they come to a point where they actually surrender to Christ as Lord, then they're going to burn in hell like everyone else who rejects the gospel. And so what makes for holiness? What makes for true holiness? What makes for a relationship with God? It's a heart being transformed by Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the writer in Hebrews tells us, to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. And so an argument broke out because at this point the rebuilding of the temple was about halfway completed. Remember where we are in Zechariah. They're coming back from exile. They're rebuilding the temple. The temple's a bit, When Zechariah started, the foundations of the temple were laid. When Zechariah started, the foundations of the temple were laid. And at this point in the book, they're about halfway done. And some of the folks thought that they shouldn't do the memorial fast anymore because there's no point in doing a memorial fast for a temple that's in the process of being rebuilt. And so this created conflict with the folks who thought that the Jewish people should continue doing the memorial fast. So finally, the disagreement reaches a point where they need to get the preacher involved, right? That's what happens. You get, if there's a disagreement in church, you get the preacher involved. So in verses 2 and 3, we read where they sent Sherezar and Regamelech and their men to entreat the Lord by asking whether they should continue with these two memorial fasts. And then what we read in verses 5 through 7 is that God speaks to Zechariah and tells him to speak to the priests and ask them a series of questions. So what does he ask them? Question one, did you really fast for the Lord? Did you really fast for the Lord? Or did you just do it for yourselves? Question two, when you eat and drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? And then question three, should you not have obeyed the words of the prophets when things were going well? 
So really, questions one and two are, are roughly the same. God is asking, are you doing this for me or are you doing it for you? And then the third question is, should you not have obeyed the words of the prophets when things were going well? And so essentially what Zechariah is saying is, you're asking the wrong questions. You're asking the wrong questions. They're asking, should we continue doing this fast that we instituted in the first place? And what they should be asking is, why do we fast to begin with? Is it for us? Is it for God? Who are we doing this for? And so what we see is that this is a matter of motivation. If you look in your bulletin, you, uh, I actually put the outline for this message in there this morning. What we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing is that this is, number one, a matter of motives, a matter of motivation. Why do we do the things that we do? Are we serving ourselves or are we serving God? This is precisely the issue that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. See, here's the deal. If you actually look into, if you actually look into the prophets, if you look into the Old Testament, and you really study it out and you think about all the issues that are addressed in the Old Testament, what you'll find is that people really haven't changed all that much. What you'll find is that people are encountering the same problems and, and God presents the solution to the problems. The solution is repent and obey. Do what's right. And people reject the solution and they keep living in the problem and wondering why things aren't going well for them. And so what we see in Zechariah is this is a matter of motivation. So this is, this is precisely the issue that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 in verses 1 through 7 and 16 through 18. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray... You shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now look down at verses 16 through 18. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to be men as that they may appear to be men to be fasting. That they may appear to men to be fasting. Sorry. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father, who is in the secret place, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. So notice the three things that Jesus mentions there. Charitable deeds, prayer, and fasting. What's going on in Zechariah? They're doing these memorial fasts every year, and they've completely lost their meaning because the people use them as an occasion to flaunt their righteousness, as a way to compensate for the fact that they're actually behaving badly. And you know what's interesting? This isn't the first time in Israel's history that they've done this. 
If you look back at Isaiah chapter 58, it reads almost like Zechariah chapter 7. Isaiah, 58, Isaiah chapter 58 reads almost just like Zechariah chapter 7. God said that the problem was that when they were fasting, they were afflicting their workers and slaves, and they were, fast, and they were fighting with one another. And then God says in Isaiah 58, 9 through 11, He says, If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones and you shall be like a watered garden. And so what's happening is they were actually fasting in terms of how they would abstain from food, but their hearts were not being transformed. And so you know what you have whenever you have a fast with, with no spiritual discipline? You know what you have whenever you have a fast with, with no movement towards God? You know what you have whenever you have a fast with no heart transformation? A diet. That, I mean, that's what you have. And so I want us to see something. I want us to see something because I believe that Isaiah and Zechariah both treat this issue differently than, than we would have. I think that Zechariah and Isaiah both treat this issue differently than a lot of us would have if we were in their position. Because if we see people abusing a spiritual practice... Think about this. If we see people abusing a spiritual practice, then we say, fine, we just won't have the spiritual practice. That's, that, that way no one can abuse it. But if people are acting selfish, prideful, and abusive when they fast, then we just won't fast. That's, that's what it, the way it is. That's how a lot of, of pre-K teachers and, and parents solve the issue of children fighting over a toy, right? If they see children fighting over a toy, sometimes they'll just take the toy and say, all right, now no one can have it. And so Zechariah and Isaiah, whenever they see the people abusing the fast, whenever they see people not fasting correctly, they don't say, well, we just won't have a fast. Instead, they instruct the people on how they should fast appropriately. Now think about this not just with fasting, but think about this with other spiritual things like speaking in tongues, like the Lord's Supper. Lots of Christians treat the concept of speaking in tongues this way. We see where a lot of people abuse the practice of speaking in tongues, so we just abstain from it. And we avoid churches that engage with that practice because we don't want to be party to an abuse of a gift. But that's not how Paul deals with the situation in 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, 5, Paul says, I want every one of you to speak in tongues. I would much rather you prophesy, but I want all of you to speak in tongues. And I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't say, well, some people are abusing this practice, so you shouldn't do it. Instead, Paul provides a framework for how the church practices the gift of tongues because he recognizes it as an evidence of the Holy Spirit's work among God's people. And we don't just do this with tongues either. We do it with the Lord's Supper. We're afraid to practice the Lord's Supper every week because we think that the more often we do it, the more it will lose its meaning. And we, and, and we make that argument because we're basing the meaning of the Supper on how reverential we feel when we take it. 
But here's the problem. If we're basing the meaning of the supper on how reverential we feel, then we should just stop taking it all together because we're never going to feel reverential enough to meet the standard of how reverential the practice actually is. Not only that, but if we're basing our worship practices, like whether or not we take the supper, whether or not we sing contemporary or, or hymns, or whether we have formal or whether we have formal or informal liturgy on how we feel, then we've reached a place where we're no longer worshiping the real God, but rather a false God that coincidentally enough never conflicts with our preferences, desires, or feelings. Isn't it strange? Isn't it strange how often we worship based on how we feel and then we find out as we go along that the God we worship never conflicts with our preferences, desires, or feelings. Now my point in all of this is to say that if the Lord's Supper really has objective meaning, then the meaning is there whether you feel it or not. You're saved whether you feel it or not. God is real whether you feel him or not. There's a lot of things in life that are true and have objective meaning whether we feel them to be true or not. Why do we treat the Lord's Supper like something that we have to feel in order for it to have meaning? If the Lord's Supper doesn't have meaning to us, then that's a problem with our own hearts. That's not a problem with the Supper. So what do we do? Because we don't want to act. So, so what we do, because we don't actually want to deal with what's going on in our hearts, is we just avoid doing the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Now, if you come to me after service and say, well, Logan, maybe we should do the Lord's Supper more, then I'm going to tell you that you've missed the point. Because my point isn't about how often or how little we do the supper. My point is that basing how often or how little we do it on whether or not it will lose its meaning is a terrible argument. Here's the deal. The Bible never directly tells us how often the Lord's Supper should be practiced. But it does say that as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Now that same now, now let's take that same principle and apply it back to Zechariah chapter 7. Neither one of those, neither one of those prophets, Zechariah or Isaiah, neither one of them condemned the act of fasting. <laughs> Now, I mentioned earlier that the Jews has added four different fasts to their calendar in addition to the one fast that God had commanded at Yom Kippur. Did you notice throughout Zechariah chapter 7 that Zechariah didn't say, well, you should stop doing these fasts because God never commanded those to begin with? Zechariah didn't say that. Zechariah simply asked the question, why do you fast? Is it for you or is it for God? As a matter of fact, if you read ahead to Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19, God says that if his people will love truth and peace, then these extra fasts that they've added to the calendar will actually be a joy to them. Now, think about that for a second. Zechariah says later, and we'll look at this next week in Zechariah chapter 8, that if they will love truth and peace, then these extra fasts that they've added to their calendar will actually be a joy to them. Why is that significant? It's significant because you don't question the things that you enjoy doing. Now, you might if, you, if you're so legalistic that you think fun and happiness are sinful, but you, don't, you generally don't question the things that you enjoy doing. 
So if you don't question the things that you enjoy doing, then the fact that the people had to send pe- then the fact that the people had to send representatives to the temple to ask if they could continue if they should continue doing these fa- these fasts means that these fasts that they created were a burden to them. Is it for you or is it for God? That's the question that's going to get you to the heart of the issue real quick. And so it's a matter of motives. Next we, next we see that this message in Zechariah 7, we see that this message from, that God speaks through Zechariah is a matter of consistent obedience. Look at verse 7 again. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 7. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed to the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and lowland were inhabited? So what, what does Zechariah do here? He takes them back to a time before the threat of exile even entered their mind. And he says, if, if you would have been obedient when things were going well, you wouldn't be in the mess that you're in now. I'll say that again. He tells the people, if you would have been obedient when things were going well, you wouldn't be in the mess that you're in now. There's an old saying that goes, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, and good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And this was never more true than in Israel's history, and it's just as true in the condition of our nation, our church, and our homes. When things went well, people got soft and lukewarm in their relationship with God. And they say, well, why do we need to pray? Things are just fine. Why do we need to worship? We're doing well. Why do we need to read the scriptures? We know what we're doing. Many churches have that same mentality. They say, well, we, we don't need to pray. We're doing all right. We don't need to worship. There's, there's people in the pews. Money's coming in. There's a few young people. We've got a piano player. We don't need to study the Bible. That's what we pay the preacher for. We don't need to fast. Everything is a-okay. And pretty soon, attendance dwindles, giving is down, the young people are gone, the music stops. All because people got comfortable. People got comfortable. That's the issue. And the prophet Amos says, Woe to them that are in ease in Zion. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. And it's precisely that kind of ease that Israel found themselves in just, because, just before they were taken into exile. And it's that kind of ease that lulls many professing believers and even entire churches to sleep. And Zechariah tells us that if you had just obeyed God when things were going well, you wouldn't be in the shape that you're in now. You can save yourself a lot of hardships in life just by being obedient when it's easier for you to be obedient. Objectively speaking, it was easier for the Israelites to be obedient in their land and in their own culture than it was for them to be obedient in Babylon. But obedience was still required of them either way. I use the illustration of Jonah a lot because it's so relevant to our obedience. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, now when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah can obey God and start heading that way or he can get thrown overboard, get swallowed by a fish, and get thrown up on the shores of Nineveh. Now, he's getting to Nineveh either way, but it would have been easier if he had obeyed God as soon as he recognized God's voice instead of waiting and doubting and disobeying. God calls Jonah to Nineveh, and he's getting there one way or another, but he's still going to get there. 
In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul puts all people into two categories. He says that all people are either objects of wrath or objects of mercy. And basically the argument is that if you repent and believe and act on that belief, then you're an object of mercy. But if you reject the gospel, if you're stubborn, hard-hearted, and disobedient, then you're an object of wrath. And what Paul says is that God is going to get glory out of you either way. But it's better if you give God glory as an object of mercy. Because listen to what he says in Romans 9, 22 and 23. He says, What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath, prepared for destruction? What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory? So the riches of God's glory is made known to those who have received mercy when they witness the amount of wrath that is poured out on those who reject God. Now why is that? It's because, the, it's because wrath is the default setting for everyone because we're all born in sin. That's what John 3.36 says. It says, whoever believes in the Son is eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Now, if you take that concept of wrath being the default setting for people unless they believe Christ and obey the gospel, and you look at what Paul says about wrath from Romans 1, 18 through 32, then the picture becomes clear. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul says three different times, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Well, what did God give them over to? He gave them over to their sin and their fleshly desires. And that picture of wrath is actually consistent with wrath in the Old Testament. If you think wrath in the Old Testament is just fire and sulfur raining down on God's people, then you've not paid much attention. Because the destruction that came upon God's people as a, as a punishment for their sin never directly came from the hand of God. Their destruction was always a result of God removing His hand of mercy and allowing their enemies to overtake them. And so for Israel, wrath was God letting them go so that foreign nations could come in and destroy everything they built and take them into captivity. Okay, well that's wrath on a national level. The wrath that Paul talks about in Romans 1 operates on an individual level, but it works in the same way. For the individual person, wrath is God allowing that person's sin to overtake them and define their way of life. That's why Romans 1, 24 and 25 says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. How many of y'all remember Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan used to sing a song called You're Going to Serve Somebody. He said, you may be rich, you may be poor, you may be blind or lame. You may be living in another country under another name, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And so notice what we've seen in the text so far. We've seen a matter of motives. We've seen a matter of consistent obedience. And now we're looking at a matter of the heart because that's what it all comes back to. It comes back to the heart. Look at verses 9 through 12 in Zechariah 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and they stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, like, yes, they made their hearts like flint. Refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Notice the pattern. God speaks, the people don't obey, wrath comes, and wrath takes the form of bondage. Verses 11 and 12 are the most damning indictment against God's people that can be made. And here's why. Look at verse 11 in the New King James. It says, they shrugged their shoulders. Do you know what the opposite of love is? It's not hate. It's indifference. Indifference is when you just don't care. You don't give consideration. Because hate takes energy. Hate takes energy. Hate requires you to be preoccupied toward the target of your hate. Indifference is when God speaks and you respond by, eh, doesn't matter. And so God speaks and his people respond by going, eh. They shrug their shoulders. Well, how does someone get to that point? They get to that point because verse 12 says that they made their hearts like flint. Or they made their hearts hard. Well, how did they make their hearts hard? Verse 12, again, says, They refused to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. This was Israel's problem over and over again. God would send them prophet after prophet, and they would not listen. They would not repent. And God allowed everything to be taken from them, and it was only when everything was taken that they were finally able to listen to what God had to say. Now you think about that. What, what would God have to take out of your life to get you to listen to Him? What would God have to remove from your life in order for you, in order for you to see Him at work? In order for you to hear what He has to say to you? What would God have to take from you? All the times that Israel was either in the wilderness or in exile taught them that they could live without a lot of things, even their own land and their own homes, but they could not live without the word of the Lord. You can be a nomad, wandering the earth, but you cannot live without the word of the Lord. You can be homeless, you can be starving, you can be thirsty, but you cannot live without the word of the Lord. And as soon as you begin to think that you don't need to hear from the Word of God, then your world will start to turn upside down. And if you're actually spiritually cognizant of your relationship with God, then you'll start to notice that something is not right. But if you're stubborn, blind, bullheaded, and lost in your own disobedience, then you won't notice a thing. It'll be business as usual. But see, eventually God's people realized something was wrong. But it was too late because in verse 13, God says they would not hear. So they called out and I would not listen. Listen, I think it's funny how we don't want to listen to God, but we want God to listen to us when something goes wrong. I don't think you heard me. 
It's funny how we don't want to listen to God, but we want God to listen to us when something goes wrong. I want to share this quote with you from Richard D. Phillips, and I'm going to close. Richard D. Phillips in his commentary over Zechariah, this is what he has to say. He says, the Old Testament Jews did not hear God when he called, and when the consequences arrived, he gave them the same in return. This is the most horrible judgment, to be without God when he is needed. And of course, we do need him. In the same way, people today do not want God in their lives and they're getting what they asked for. They want to be godless and so they have no God in their lives, no Savior and no Lord. And then the consequences of their sins are inevitably felt, even as Jerusalem felt the siege engines of Babylon. May God save us from similar unbelieving folly. Listen, we all have a choice. We can choose to open ourselves up to the voice of the Lord and allow Him to correct us, convict us, and set us on the right path. Or we can ignore God, go about business as usual, and suffer the consequences of our decisions. The choice is ours. And Jesus makes His terms absolutely, cl absolutely clear and understandable in this way in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth into eternal life. And few there be that find it. Listen, it doesn't take any amount of effort to go down a path of destruction. It doesn't take any amount of effort to go down a path of destruction. People do it all the time. But it takes awareness and intentionality to recognize that there's a straight and narrow way that leads to life. And there's few that find it because they simply don't want to admit that the way they've been living with indifference toward God is wrong. And so what are we going to do this morning? How are we going to respond to this? How are we going to take all of this in? That's, the question, that, that's a question that's before the house this morning. Like, what do we do with a word like this one? What do we do with what Zechariah says? Do we, just, do we just blow it off because it's Old Testament stuff that was back then, this is now, or do we really take it to heart? I pray that we take it to heart. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And Father, this is, this is a hard book. But Lord, sometimes our hearts are hard. Lord, our hearts are hard, and so sometimes it takes a hard text to get through. I pray, God, that you would send your spirit this morning to soften our hearts so that we would receive your word with gladness and that it would take root in us and that it would bring forth fruit. I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.